usually the gnarlier the situation, the more exciting it is to me. If you are clear with people of what they're signing up for and what's expected of them, then you're opting onto the bus. When I worked at Zynga, we sort of infamously in the media, it came out that we had renegotiated unvested equity with some executives instead of firing them. And Nolan's like raising his eyebrows right now. So I'm like, you can go. This is very easy to go dig up. I don't actually care. It is not a thing I would like lay down and die for. But you know what? We decided as a management team that this is what we're going to do. And it was my job to build that out. Playing the martyr does not win. Like there's no winning in this. But I'm also, you know, who I am is my word and my perspective and showing that I am not afraid to say it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the HR Heretics Podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. We launched the show last week with Patty McCord and want to thank all those who listened and shared the episode with their friends. Many of you reached out to me and Kelly on LinkedIn and told us how you love Patty's takes on people management and her stories from scaling Netflix. We're stoked for you to hear another people leader with a unique view of the world on today's episode with Colleen McCreary. Colleen has an incredible career. She was an HR leader at EA, Zynga, WePay, Twilio, Credit Karma, and she's now at Ribbit Capital, a venture capital firm. She was also an advisor to the final season of the show Silicon Valley on HBO, which you'll hear us ask her about during the episode. But before we get to that, we have a quick segment about a developing story around executive departures. Hey, Nolan, did you see the press today? Looks like Carta announced some news on Medium about a couple lawsuits with former executives and also emailed all their customers as well. I was just curious, you know, former chief people officer, if you had any points of view, if you were surprised. All right. So a couple of disclaimers to start. I was the chief people officer at Carta for two and a half years. I am a current Carta shareholder. And I know nothing about the current litigation with former employees or former execs. What I do know is executives ask for severance if they get fired or they depart a company. And sometimes it can feel like they're holding you ransom. And these severance packages are not like normal employee severance packages. They can be worth millions of dollars. Most CEOs want to make these things go away because it's distracting. But Henry is not most CEOs. He's a first principles thinker, and one of his frameworks for these situations is to do the right thing. We faced a similar situation when I was Henry's chief people officer, and he drew a line to not settle. That situation was picked up by the media, and it was pretty wild to me to see how many details they missed or they got wrong. So I don't know what's going to happen here, but I do know that many CEOs and chief people officers have dealt with similar situations and have been frustrated with the traditional advice from their board of directors, which is to settle to avoid the distraction. So back to this one, look, Henry proactively emailed Carta customers, which goes against all conventional wisdom, but he's going direct. And we've seen Elon do something similar at Twitter and at Tesla. Three years ago, I would have advised Henry not to do it. And I would have advised him that because I think it, it brings unwanted attention. I'm still unpacking and figuring out in my mind how I feel about this today. But now that I'm a founder, I do view these situations differently. And many of Carta's customers are founders. So, you know, he's, Henry's also in a spot to where Carta's product is strong, that he can afford to take a stand when many other founders can't. So I don't know how it's going to play out, but I do know that this is a taboo topic that deserves a fresh perspective. And so I'd love to hear what our audience thinks in the comments. Interestingly enough, we, we talked to Colleen about a tough situation with former execs at Zynga. And so I, I do think we want to do a show on exec departures, and we'd love to talk to someone that's experienced these situations. So please ping me or Kelly if you're interested in sharing your experience. And we have linked to Henry's blog in the show notes. Without further ado, here's our interview with Colleen McCreary. Make sure to share it with your friends. 
and share it with your enemies. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Colleen, it's so great to have you. You've done it all from early days at Microsoft and Zynga all the way through and now into board membership, VC. We're excited to get real on a few topics. Sounds great. Excited. All right, Colleen, let's get into it. I actually, I want to get into layoffs first because it's still happening in tech right now. It's still a lot of, uh, a lot of the soundbite. And you've been very outspoken about the layoff frenzy in the last year. And you said that rolling cuts were a race to the bottom. I would just love to understand your philosophical view. Yeah. You know, I think if you have been the person who's had to make the call on whether or not to do layoffs, you are probably a little more sensitive to what does that mean for the culture? What does that mean for the company? You know, sort of, um, and in, in my opinion, um, the experience I had at Zynga, I very much took it that it was my responsibility and my failure as a leader that we had gotten to the point where we needed to do layoffs. And I, and I say that because I had for months been sort of saying like, I think we have too many people. I don't know what everybody's doing. I think we're hiring too quickly. Um, and I couldn't get any of the other leaders to listen to me and to, to stop hiring. And so, you know, the first time you go through that and you own it and you're, you know, taking responsibility for, you know, sort of being the person who made the wrong call, the race to the bottom commentary was a little bit more around, I think there is a lot of copycat in Silicon Valley, which is one company starts to do it. And then every other company thinks like, oh, am I missing out on something? And not just layoffs. I think this goes across the board on lots of topics, but, you know, oh, I can do it too. The other distinction you should make here is that there are two different populations. There's a population of businesses that absolutely needed to do layoffs. Like, I think you do layoffs if you really have to do it to, for your business's survival. You are not going to necessarily have a business. You know, I think Airbnb, when they were at the beginning of the pandemic, I think they actually were in that situation where they, you know, they were life or death. I think there are a lot of other businesses that are at the height of their earnings. Um, they are seeing record revenue quarters, and yet they are laying off you know, high numbers of employees. And at the same time, it doesn't feel like anybody's taking any responsibility or accountability for how did they get so large that they needed to do these types of things. So I think there's such a distinction between a layoff, right? And maybe I'm just old now, but a layoff being, let's take a 5% haircut across the board versus a more surgical, do we need this team? Do we need this business? why, et cetera. And I was advising an HR leader yesterday and I, and I said, listen, unless you're really clear on the why and the where of cutting, I would exhaust and even somewhat architect every other way of getting to a number, be it performance management, stop hiring, stop backfilling, cut this. Yeah. I think there are so many levers that you can pull. And I, you know, at this point now I worked at a company that we, you know, at Credit Karma, we, we had a really, I mean, we've talked a lot about this, but I had this crazy 2020 of February 24th, 2020, we announced we're being acquired by Intuit. You know, you send people home a couple of weeks later, COVID, and this was a very in-office kind of place. And our revenue dropped 70% by the end of March and is still down 70% into April. And now you're running, what do we do? And of course, because we're in the middle of this acquisition, you've got this board that's of course saying like, preserve cash, give us our money, <laughs> you know, what this deal won't happen, what, you know, your whole business is falling apart. And, you know, it was really nice to be in partnership with a CEO who was willing to listen to, is there another way we can do this? And some of it was related to the mission of this company. Like we, we said that our mission was to help people make financial progress. So the worst thing that you can do to an employee relative to that would be to take away their financial stability. And so we did go down that road. I mean, we took the time to say, we're going to do pay cuts first. You know, we, we cut a promotion cycle. We stopped hiring. We turned off recruiting. We turned off paid marketing. We moved all of those people around who were in those jobs. We actually found them other jobs in the company. Um, and then we said to people like, hey, if this is not for you, if this is not your jam, like we will pay you to quit right now. And then we said to the board, like, hey, we can make this work. We can, you know, give us four months to try it this way. If it's not working, if we're still in a really bad situation, we will revisit this. And we told employees, too, that, you know, we don't know 
We really don't know. And, you know, in that experience, uh, the market started to come back for us back into about four months later, we brought payback five months later. But it takes a lot of trust and a lot of willpower. And it is not the easiest way to do all of those things. Like that is certainly not as quick as, hey, if we had laid off 15% of the company company right away or we just cut all of these things it sounds like you guys actually had talent planned appropriately for where you were and then where you were going i think big tech did not do that i think big tech had a had a desire to hire as many people as possible because it was a zero-sum game to hire away from their competition whether that be other big tech or startups and now as investors have changed what they care about which is profits versus growth they were kind of left with, this is all we can do. All we can do is is cut right now. Twitter is an interesting use case of from internal, from what I heard, heard from people internally, they've gone from about 8,000 employees to about 2,000. And the product still works basically the exact same for me. I noticed zero difference as a user. Facebook, I think, has cut 15 to 20% of their staff somewhere in that zone. I'm curious to get your take on it because as these companies had gotten a little fat and now they're trying to get fit, they made these mistakes, but how do you think that they should have responded after making them? Yeah. It's funny you use that analogy because for a long time, I mean, for years, even before all of this chatter, I used to say that layoffs were the diet drug that people use before they go on vacation, right? So instead of like eating well most of the time and working out, you go to the smorgasbord or the buffet in Vegas and you get yourself full and now you're like, oh crap, I'm trying to get into this bathing suit. You're right. I think that this was mismanagement for a long time. So there's the talent hoarding concept. And then there's the just letting it go. You know, like I've, I've read some of the articles where they're talking about at Amazon where people just were hiring and there was no plan and no one was paying attention. And, you know, sometimes they didn't even realize that recruiting was bringing in all of these bodies. And I just think that that's irresponsible. Now, maybe that's my having, you know, worked at big companies at the beginning of my career and then having moved to smaller companies and and recognizing, you know, sort of the value of one person versus and, and the complexity of just throwing bodies at problems, which, you know, actually is a problem. It slows you down in many cases. If there is a business reason to that you can express to employees that they can understand the context and they understand the decisions that they're making, um, then I think everybody gets it. And then it is about the process. So Nolan, at the very start of this, you said like the rolling layoffs piece. I think that part is exceptionally harmful to a culture. I think if, especially for those big, big companies, they have a lot of people. They could plan for, hey, this is the date. We're going to execute on this date. Um, we're going to tell people when it's done. We're going to give them, you know, and these are the same companies that just a year or two ago were talking about mental health for our employees is important and the emotional health of our employees is important. And they still do it, some of them, which really it's the hypocrisy of the message um, that they could really be thoughtful around what they're doing and the how that they're doing. And that's what I think is really frustrating more than anything else. Um, and, and to feel, you know, and to feel like people are not taking any responsibility or accountability for having let that happen. And to your point, I mean, if there's rolling layoffs and you're thrashing and it's, I mean, and a company survives that and it, it's doing well, those survivors are like, you don't know what you're doing. Why are, why are you doing rolling layoffs? Because you don't, you're not thinking through this. You don't have a handle on this business. Does it really matter? I'm, I used to think the same way. And I think what I've learned as I've seen it happen now over the course of the last 18 to 24 months is that it doesn't matter. Like it, people are fine. The companies are actually doing better today than they were before. And so I think we have this, I, I agree, there is a better way to do it, but it's still getting done and it may be very messy and we may not like it. But I, my question to you guys is, does it actually matter? I do, I do think it matters, and I'll say it in two things. Number one, there's a combination of the market itself, the overall economy and the market, which is creating better market value. I don't necessarily know if I would say that all of these same companies are more productive or are necessarily... I think you could look at Google right now and the AI space and the AR market. And I don't, you know, I think that they are behind and that they, you know, for all of the... All of this created additional distraction. You know, some of these companies you can get very comfortable. And so there's a lack of potentially 
desire to win at all costs, right? And I don't think necessarily everybody who is left at those companies has that same sort of fire. I actually think Twitter did do a good job of that. They did frame for if you're here, you're going to be here for this reason. And this is the culture we're going to have. And I think they fired some people up around it. So, you know, I don't think that they, I think they actually set expectations appropriately. I don't think I would say that at all the other companies. And then I also, from what I am seeing on the vantage point is there are people who are exceptionally strong, who sort of just said like, screw it, I'm done, I'm out. And they either, you know, are going to start startups or they're going to other places. Like, uh, from what I understand from talking to my peers and other people who work at these companies is a lot of their best people did opt out. So their attrition is low because there aren't a lot of jobs. But as we know, the best people always have other places to go. And a number of those top people said, screw it. This is I just this is not for me. I don't want to be here anymore. And they could afford to take those risks because they probably were doing so well at some of these companies that they were in a very comfortable position to be like, this is finally my 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 siren song. And we are hearing this, that like attrition of top performers at those companies is is a lot is high right now. I think the only thing that matters is the clarity of what that company stands for and the expectations. We can have opinions on the right way or the wrong way to do anything. But what every company has a right, every founder, every CEO, every board has a right to do what they please. Of course, you know, with, <laughs> there's a threshold. But what, what matters is that clarity of that expectation and being transparent about it. It's when you get fuzzy, unclear, back and forth, talking at both sides of your mouth, which I would think I, I would say that most companies fall into that camp. Like you have the 30% that are really clear, whether it's Twitter or someone that's like, beautiful at how they do things. That's actually okay with me. It's okay to be polarizing. It's not okay to be unclear. A hundred percent. I I mean, this is the, you know, the touchy feely Brene Brown, like, you know, clarity is kind, right? Like, and, you know, I think it's the same about return to office and how you're paid and all of these other things that like, hey, if you are clear with people of what they're signing up for and what's expected of them, then they're opting, you know, I always say you're on the bus or off the bus, like then you're opting onto the bus. You know, you, you, you are choosing as an adult, whether or not you want to be on this bus and you understand it is when it is not clear, you don't know where the bus is going. You know, it's taking all these other directions. You turned around, you left people's luggage on the side, like all of that, you know, when things get all screwy, I think is when you, you lose trust and you, and frankly, you just waste time and keep having these same conversations over and over instead of like moving on to the work that needs to get done. Hey, everyone, we'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody, your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit lattice.com slash HR Heretics today. That's lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire, and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec, in the middle of a search right now, or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions, or head to joincontinuum.com. One distinction I'll quickly make, because I th I, you guys are right, I think at big companies, post-product market fit, clarity is expected and should be part of the expectation. I think if you're joining a Series A or Series B company that doesn't yet have product market fit, part of the expectation for you taking that 
is that, hey, we are going to have a lot of fog and we don't know exactly which direction we're going to go in. And so we should expect things to change all the time. And I think as we've raised, as companies have raised a lot of money in the last few years, many people have been going earlier with the expectation that it's going to be very similar as working at a big company. And that is not what you are signing up for. Oh, first, well, that is for certain. I mean, I think, and that is a failure of expectation setting in the recruiting process in general, or just in general of people signing, you know, they, they themselves doing their own homework of what does it mean to go to a startup? I, yeah, I'm a big believer in employee accountability. This is also, I think, very connected to the return to office thing, which is like, hey, like, you know what the expectations are. Like when you signed up for whatever gig, people told you, hey, you have to be in office or, you're, or you don't have to be in the office. And then when you whine and complain that you don't want to have to do whatever has been asked of you, you just want to abdicate any form of responsibility or accountability of that. And, you know, I think that's also equally that person, you know, are, is at fault for not doing their homework or not necessarily asking the right questions or, um, frankly, just not liking the answer that they're hearing and not realizing that companies do have the right to set the cultures that they want to have. I, Nolan, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. And it has not always made me the most popular to say that, but I very comfortable with doing it. And on that, the CHRO role is kind of like everyone's looking, everyone has an opinion on how you should do your job. And it's been a heavy couple of years. I'd love your view, Colleen, on sometimes the burden of having a strong point of view, as you do, as we do in this job, and being a female leader on top of that in this job in venture, which has traditionally been, right, sometimes we're the only female in the room at the C team. I don't say it to whine about it or anything else. Like, I'm really proud of, you know, my my profile of work, the good, the bad, the stub, the toe, like those kinds of things. But I think if you do not have a point of view, and um, and this is for any role as a leader, and you are afraid to say that point of view, and you should you know have data to back it, um, then you shouldn't be taking those roles. Like you know, like at the end of the day, if you put a, a usually I say like a VP or a C level title next to your name you are signing on to the responsibility of having a, an, a point of view and supporting the business and, you know, having to make really hard choices that are not always going to be beloved. And in my own personal case, I do think the quote unquote HR role has a little bit, I always say it's like this, you know, Snow White to Darth Vader assumptions that people have in their head. And I think especially when women are in the role, there is this expectation that you're going to be this sort of grandmotherly, sweet, nice sort of, and, and, you know, like I at least learned that lesson early that I need to clarify for people quickly that when I am in the room, that that is not my natural go-to. Um, and I am not going to respond in that way. And you have to reset people's expectations I think it's very easy, you know, we all kind of say this, like it's very easy to blame the head of people for everything you don't like in a company. And, you know, there there was a law, a big phase that I don't think LinkedIn and social media has really helped talent leaders for a while around, I'm the chief happiness officer, I'm the, the CEO of culture or these kinds of things. So you allow every other leader at your company off the hook and to like abdicate any responsibility around these things. Like my, at Credit Karma, our CEO was very adamant about have people having to return to office. Like it was his thing. But I was the voice of all of those things. I'm the one who had to send the emails. I'm the one who had to answer all the Slack messages. I'm the one who was vocalizing, this is how we're going to do it. I had to put all the, all this stuff together. And, you know, and just the vehement that people were so angry about it. And yet, if you actually knew me at all, and I don't work there now, so it's really easy to do this. But like, if you knew me at all, you would have known that I was remote uh, back 20 something years ago at Microsoft. I had, you know, was like, hey, all the work I do is on the East Coast. I met this guy. He lived in Charlotte. We've been married 22 years now, so it's turned out okay. But like, I worked remotely from Charlotte from my team in Seattle, and I convinced everybody to do that. My head of recruiting at multiple companies was remote in other places. I don't actually care. It is not a thing I would like lay down and die for. But you know what? 
we decided as a management team that this is what we're going to do. And it was my job to build that out. And I think the tenor and tone that people feel, and I think, you know, this is where uh, the sort of social media culture has sort of determined this, you know, just sort of like mean and mean spirited. And I think when women in particular are very strong, there is a lot to say um, about, you know, the style of which you communicated that and how you communicated that and what, what that means. And yeah, I mean, I feel like I've taken a lot of heat over the years, but I will also say some of it was me learn needing to learn that like, I can't take all of this on my shoulders. Um, and I had, you know, in like the RTO example, I had to ask my CEO to be like, finally, you have got to step in here. Like you have, someone else has to do it. And I think what we, you know, playing the martyr does not win. Like there's no winning in this, but I'm also, you know, who I am is my word and my perspective and showing that I am not afraid to say it. Um, that, and that's just, I think, you know, quote unquote, a brand, I guess I have now, or I was that girl in the second grade and I'm still that woman at 50. So some things never change. You're speaking for a lot of us with the RTO experience. So a hundred percent. I mean, re- real talk, have you ever had to make a tough choice based on that, Colleen? Cause I, we, you and I've talked to a lot of folks and usually it's the HR leader that feels it's, this isn't working the founder, the CEO, but I have to make it work. I have to make it work. And sometimes they stay in a situation for years that is, you know, can be unhealthy. Have you ever had to break up and can you demystify that? Is that okay to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a couple of different experiences. I mean, one where I didn't break up right away, but I really took it on the chin. Um, when I worked at Zynga, which probably has a number of examples, but we sort of infamously in the media, um, it came out that we had renegotiated unvested equity with some executives instead of firing them. And um, yeah, Nolan's like raising his eyebrows right now. So I'm like, you can go. This is very easy to go dig up because it came out in the media as like we were taking stock away from all employees. Like, it's not exactly what happened, but we had three very senior executives who, you know, as you scale, weren't quite making it. And our CEO for all of the things didn't actually want to fire them. He was just like, hey, we're going to have to hire over these people. And they're already making. And by the way, at the time, it was like three digits of millions of dollars uh, that we were talking about. And he was like, you know, you need to go and tell them that we're going to take, you know, renegotiate their unvested equity. They get to keep their job. Uh, and you needed to make that happen. And, um, and I fought him, our COO at the time, our board. I mean, I fought for six months before, like, this is wrong. You just don't do this in the Valley. This is going to be painful. Like we shouldn't do it. And, you know, I lost the battle and I don't think that was the battle I was willing to quit over at the time. And I think it was the right call. Like, I don't think I should have quit over that, but I was then I had to be the messenger who had to go and do that. And frankly, what's interesting about that story is that two of the three executives stayed and did stay, you know, which never got reported. But when it did eventually leak out in all of the other sort of one-sided leaks that were happening at the time, it was horrible. I mean, it was just, just as I had predicted of like, if this gets out, you know, the story was you take away equity from employees and it haunted me by the way, for at multiple companies forever has, it has followed me wherever I've gone. Um, and, um, you know, but I, I think if there are sort of, if you are morally challenged, if you are super ethically challenged, if there is something, you've got to walk away. And I, yeah, I have been in an experience where I, you know, was somewhere that you would not be able to find it, but, uh, and there were some things they wanted me to do. And I think it's because I had just left a, you know, something like a Zynga, which was very aggressive and high profile and all those kinds of things that I was just like, I'm not, I don't, that's not who I am. I won't do that. And my advice to a lot of, I don't think this is just for the HR space. I think this is leadership in general, but it's like, do not put yourself in a situation where you are, you have to stay somewhere for the money. When I was at Zynga, I lived in a two bedroom condo with my husband, my, my son and my sister. Um, 
and I drove a Prius that was like 10 years old. And I, you know, and I have forever lived a lifestyle that would allow me to walk away. And I think that that is the best advice I can give to somebody is that don't ever be in a situation where you, you know, are going to compromise who you are because you need to for the money or the title or, or something like that. Colleen, that story is incredible around taking unvested equity away. I've actually been in a similar situation and I've heard this soundbite multiple times and it especially comes up when layering is discussed. And I'm curious, reflecting back on the story you just told, obviously the media picked up on a narrative and I'm sure that was very hard from a recruiting brand standpoint, but was it the right decision? I think we should have just fired those people. That was the right, that would have been the right decision. I mean, honestly, they ended up not being the superstars anyway. So, you know, like, and I have been asked, by the way, multiple times over the years since by CEOs and other people like, hey, I know you like, you know, the people who thought of it positively or and so or, or wanted to do it themselves would come back and ask me like, how did you and I will often say you should fire that person. Like, I think that that is for everybody involved, probably the best would have been the better decision. And maybe if the employee had come to me and said, like, I can't do this job anymore, which actually in one of those cases, I, I think he was sort of on the bubble, too, of like, this is too much for me. Um, maybe you would get to a place that similar to, I think, other situations where we have had maybe less high profile employees and they end up in some sort of, uh, you know, life situation that you need to like pause vesting or rethink about some things. I think there's some either. But no, my end of the day, my answer would have been we should have fired them and moved on. Um, and then you would have gotten that unvested equity back anyway. Transitioning to a lighter note really quick, just for some fun. I have to ask about Silicon Valley. How how did that happen? And how was it? I have not watched it yet because it's too close. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. So I was approached by a friend of mine who uh, was a VC uh, and somebody actually I had known since he was like an intern in college. So we'd gotten way back. Um, and he was hired full time to be in the writer's room. Like he had like a SAG card or whatever it is, uh, for the, to be full time. So he was like, you know, VC two days a week and Silicon Valley writer three days a week or something like that for like a year and a half for a couple seasons. And he, I guess, you know, I, I did start watching the show. I couldn't watch it initially to Kelly, to your note of the like, it's too close. And my old CEO, Mark from Zingo had been an advisor in the first couple of seasons. He's on the show. And I kept saying like, something that I did is going to end up on the show and I'm never going to recover. Um, and turns out that for their final season, the show, the company on the show was going to get big enough that they were going to have an HR person. And so they wanted somebody who could both kind of share stories, but then also be like the model. So that character in season six is modeled uh, after me. Her name is Tracy. Um, and even down to like, she has a bulletin board that's like a whiteboard behind her. And so like sort of desk, it's very interesting. Anyway, they asked if I wanted to do it. Who says no to that, right? Like, sure, you can talk to me about my experiences. And so I spent the first call I did with them. It was three hours and they had 25 writers in the room who just pounded me with questions of tell me about this or tell me about that or tell me about these crazy things. And how would you handle that? And how would you handle this? And we're thinking about this. And then as they were filming the season, they would send me like pieces of script and say, is this how this conversation would happen? Is this what you would say? I mean, they were so good about like somebody new is starting. What do you call that? Like new hire orientation or, you know, an offer letter or like all of these little details that they wanted. Or there's a whole scene where the CEO punches somebody and then, you know, they're like, how would you handle that? And I was like, well, if you're trying to make it funny, I mean, I'm sure it would have been me. I was like, you'd have the head of HR and the general counsel, like both sort of like figuring out like, how do we handle this? And what do we do? And what's the messaging? What happens? And I said, and you know, it's, so it was really funny to see what they did decide to bring to life and not bring to life. Uh, I didn't get paid very much at all for it. it uh, but I got my name in the credits every week and I got to go on the set and it's a pretty, yeah, it, it's, it is always a topic of conversation. Did Big Head exist at, uh, at Zynga? 
Oh, I can't say those kinds of things out loud. That'd be <laughs> I let's just say that every character on that show, I could tell you somebody who <laughs> that was probably modeled after. I bet my left ankle that any HR person watching that would be like that character and that character. I used to use. I think it's season two. They have these like one or two episodes that are all about recruiting tech talent and like. This, you know, one engineer getting all of the free shits into their house. And then there's a whole little scene where the guy's got the resume and he's interviewing candidates and he goes, you know, who's interviewing the candidate and says, oh, you know, hey, um, can can I bring my dog to work? And then we're like, yeah, 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 we're, we're dog friendly. And he was like, I see you have a pool. Do you have a lifeguard for the pool? And he was like, uh, no. And he was like, well, I need a lifeguard for my dog. Like... <laughs> Just like, but you could so see, and I used to use it for like interviewer training and like telling, and I would use those clips in all hands and say like, this is what it's like. We're in this fight for talent. Like this is, we got to be prepared. Our last session, we just reminisced about the the Jeeps as sign-ons during the heyday of Yahoo. Yeah, that was my Microsoft college recruiting days when um, Trilogy Software was sending Tiffany pins with their offer letters to the college hires and um, raffling off BMWs on campus. Yeah, I remember. So crazy. I wonder if we'll ever get back there. One of my favorite Dave Chappelle quotes is, those days are over. (laughs) (laughs) I just had a visual of someone bringing that up now. Hey, to recruit, we're going to... We're going to send uh, a Tiffany pin. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about this program? And just getting like deer in headlights. So pivoting a bit, Colleen, let's talk about M&A. Oh, yeah. You just recently went through it. I'm sure you've done it multiple times before. As we all know, myself included, there's ups and downs and stories and do's and don'ts and uh, uh, so much. Anything you'd offer just at the top of your head, just around do's and don'ts or some of the most potent moments in the M&A process that are super important? Uh, first of all, I would say it's better to be the acquiree than the acquired, but we'll we'll start with that. Maybe maybe not. Maybe it probably depends on the situation, but uh, I, I way preferred being the person taking the company versus... Uh, yes. So I, I've been on the both sides, but on the having been acquired side, uh, I've been through it twice. Um, I, I joined Climate Corp right when the acquisition was, was happening. So that was, I was, I wasn't in the diligence or anything. I sort of, I knew it was happening, although we were, uh, and Climate Corp was being acquired by Monsanto. Um, and so I was joining a company being acquired by, um, this big, huge name, which by the way, I have this whole history. I always joke about, I needed to end up in VC land because I had worked at all the other evil empires along the way. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> I really need a bank. Uh, but pretty much I had really sort of, what are you going to do uh, next? <laughs> I know. I don't even know where politics. I don't know. I, no, I'm not doing that, but that's probably the last one. I left. would love to see that. That will not happen. Well, you always have to remember on either side is that when you are being acquired, those people did not sign up to work at that company. They signed up to work for, you know, the original company. And I think that there's a lot of ego that gets involved with, aren't, why are people not excited to be at this company? Like, we're so great. We're so amazing. We're this big, huge brand. Like, you should love us. Why don't you love us? We want to just love you and like you. And you're just like, but that's not what Somebody it's not you, it's me. Sign, right. It really like that's not what someone signed up for. So I think, you know, you always have to keep that frame of reference in mind. The Credit Karma one was unique in a lot of ways. We both Climate and Monsanto and Credit Karma and Intuit, in my experience, were set up to be independent companies. So um, sort of, you know, they use the LinkedIn Microsoft model, which I think did a really nice job and still, you know, does a pretty good job of really le- allowing them to retain a lot of their uniqueness. It's very hard for companies to live that, uh, they acquire, I mean, it's just too hard to like, we, we but you're ours and we want you to be ours. And so, you know, one of the lessons I had learned from having gone through it twice was to write everything down in the process and really get nitty gritty around what does independence mean? Who is controlling all of these different levers? 
Um, what are the stages that we're going to revisit? What are the qualifications that we're going to do to revisit? And that was super helpful. You know, it was essentially our constitution of how we we're going to operate with one another. And then you had something that you could point back to a lot of times to say like, hey, we agreed to this. Um, and I also think the other lesson I really tried to employ in the process was trying to understand from the other side's perspective, why they were doing this deal, what was important to them, and approach any discussions from how you can get to a win-win on both sides. So for example, with the Credit Karma Intuit deal, I you know, was fortunate enough that my boss from Microsoft 20 something years ago runs all of total rewards now and all of the, you know, sort of nitty gritty around equity and pay and benefits and separate 401k plans and all those kinds of stuff. Like that's in her world at Microsoft. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time on the phone with her and she was great. She put her M&A people in touch with me. So I could try and understand like what the concerns would be from the Intuit side. Um, and then when I would go into those conversations, you know, I could have a better frame of reference of what outcome are we trying to get to and how can I appreciate both sides. And then the biggest thing is so much about communication, like communication, communication, communication. Um, and again, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of when you are in one of these, you know, leadership roles, you got to sign on, you know, and I may not have been yippy skippy about wanting to be acquired, but that wasn't my, I didn't get to say that in public. You know, I, that, that was not something, you know, I had, I was, I felt like I was the biggest Intuit cheerleader around, even though deep down that wasn't the path that I, I mean, I don't, there was no secret. I don't think now, but like, you know, I wasn't excited about that opportunity. I, I really wanted us to go for it and, and remain independent, but it was the right thing. The decision had been made. We were moving forward. And so, and even to the very last day, I was like, you know, supporting Intuit and what they needed to do um, on Slack channels and in all hands meetings and those kinds of things, because that's the job. Um, and, and I think all of the communication, you have got to keep giving context and bringing people along. And I think like a lot of things, the hardest part of M&A is the secrets. Um, this is actually on the layoff side too. Like I always feel like you want to keep the least amount of people in the circle as possible for the longest time because carrying the secret is so hard. Like that's the biggest burden. And, you know, I think even in our case, when we were going through the diligence, it didn't leak until the Saturday night before we signed on Monday morning. Like it, you know, and we went a long way with that, with keeping, but it was a couple months of secret keeping. And, and then even when we were, we had to do a divestiture to get the deal done and like keeping that secret and keeping everybody motivated and keeping everybody on pace and, you know, sort of, it just feels shitty to have to, to, to do that. Uh, and you understand all of the reasons why it's just such a hard uh, I think that that is like the the hardest part of the whole deal. And one of the biggest burdens, you know, and stressors I felt, you know, going through being acquired, that being said, and the last one being Looker into Google is right. We want to do everything we can to make sure that our employees get everything that we want and they're set up well and they're taken care of. And it's kind of hard because you're like, every company's different. And so you're trying to understand how that company works and the decisions you're making pre-close affect their their well-being and their careers at this new place and you don't live there and so you're like uh so you know and i uh, there's founders that have called me hey we're in the middle of this process are there any like gotchas i should be paying more attention to right now during deal due diligence or agreements pre-close that are going to impact our employees more than i might even realize it's so interesting that you say that because we in the credit karma and actually even in the Monsanto climate deal originally, I mean, we, we kept our own pay structure. We kept our own benefits. We kept our own titles. We, yeah, we kept our own equity programs. We had to make some changes based on how they did programs and those kinds of things. But it was a, that's from an independent standpoint, like it was a really good deal. But my CEO who is a lovely, lovely human, and I have to publicly give him credit that that deal we did was the most employee-friendly deal I have ever seen. 
that man revested hundreds of millions of dollars to ensure that employees got more. Um, so he had like vested it out and then he revested uh, so employees would get more. And we traded off to in all of the deal points almost every time with something to optimize for employees. So hands down, Ken Lin, I mean, I just cannot say enough good things. But one thing he did do was he said, I don't care about title within the on the other side. I don't care about any of these things. Like we can just tell them whatever. Like we can just say that our directors are like senior managers. None of that really matters. And just let them think that. And I was like, this stuff matters. Like it really will matter at some point. And it did. It did around certain grants that we could make from an equity standpoint and the size of those grants. It did in terms of now that they do these joint meetings together, who gets invited to what and why and all these kinds of things. And, you know, there are little things like that that you think are no big deal. And I think you're so focused on just getting the deal done and who really cares. And and he also, as a human, is a who cares about title, who cares about money, like those things don't really matter, la, la, la. And I'm like, yeah, what well, you're saying there as a founder CEO who's now a billionaire. So I don't think you're in the same sort of career path that other people are. But you're so right on the understanding what what actually happens on the other side and what are these little, you think that they're not that big of a deal and then it turns out to be, it actually is, is a, is a big deal. I would say the other thing that we don't, and it's such a little tiny thing, but the um, visa situation for people and what happens to your entity and what, you know, who does what we were doing our, our tax team's divestiture to get our deal done on Credit Karma, um, we were literally swapping people out who were not on visas for people who were on visas to protect their space in the green card process um, in particular, because they would have to start all over. And if you're from India or China, like that is like, it's a death sentence to some extent. And those are the things that I think if you are, if you've never done it before, if you don't know, like you don't know the long-term effects and the gratitude that employees had for us over that. And some of the leaders who knew we were, we didn't go out and say that everywhere, but some of the leaders who knew that we were being that thoughtful and doing that, it really went a long way to getting everybody comfortable that this divestiture was happening um, and that we really did take care of people, even to make sure that they ended up at a company that was going to be good for them those little kind of things. Colleen, you are a board member. You are now no longer operating and you're working at Rivet Capital. I'm curious about uh, transitioning from a full-time operating role into a, into a board member role. How did that come about? What was that process like? Many HR people want to be on boards. Uh, and there's like a, there's a demystifying I would love for you to go through there. And similarly now in venture capital and how that process came about. Yeah. So I think they're a little hand in hand in that relationships really matter. Um, the boards that I've been invited to be a part of um, were people that I knew and had worked with me before. So, and I hate that answer because it feels so, you know, like not that I earned it or couldn't have gone through a process, but I think it's, you know, it is really hard. It's so dumb to me too, because like, especially for private companies that, I mean, to have somebody who has experience scaling from a people perspective, which is where almost all their problems are, it seems to make so much sense, but it's just not a natural, for whatever reason, uh, people don't think about. And like if you have diversity laws and things like that, you may find a larger pool of people who don't look the same in that function than others. But um, so it was about relationships. I mean, I just, I people who had worked with me before and who trusted me. Um, who asked me. And I will say the few times that I have been invited to board searches, they generally are pretty progressive CEOs around people who are intentionally looking for someone either from a business reason. So they have a business that's like sells into HR or something like that, or they are a heavily talent focused leader and they you know want somebody who has been through that scale. And I think the other thing too is I have said no to board seats when they're either not something I feel like I can add value to, or frankly, it's just not something I am very excited about or the people I'm not excited about. And I think that that, that credibility, like the headhunters that I've turned down a couple times have come back to me. So um, I think there is a little bit still of that dating process. If you, you know, sort of say no a little bit, they 
still want you a little bit more. But I, I would say this is where relationships matter and how you treat people matter. And you never quite know who in your circle is going to come back around and, um, and not to be afraid to put it out there. Like I was very open when people would ask felt for, you know, former execs that I worked with, things like that. Like, Hey, I really want to, you know, I'm looking for some board seats. I, it was important to me. I felt like that was the next step. And I put it out into the world that this was something that I wanted. I wasn't shy or ashamed or I don't know, hum- too humble to say, I'm like, I feel like lots of people do that. And, um, I was intentional about making sure that, that, you know, I did it in the right way, but that people knew that that was something that I wanted. The job in the VC world is also a relationship, but it's not, I would never, if you had asked me a year ago, if I would be at a venture capital firm, there's no world that I would have ever imagined that happening. It was not, it was not some lifelong dream. So the firm that I'm working at, Ribbit Capital, it was started and run by someone named Mickey Malka. Um, Mickey uh, and Ribbit were investors at Credit Karma, and he was on the board of Credit Karma. And he also was the head of the comp committee. So for HR people, he was my my comp guy. Um, and even in the interviewing process to go to Credit Karma, which I'm sure like Kelly and Nolan, maybe you experienced this in your past before you started your company, but like I was a very long date. Like I usually spent like six months talking to CEOs before I would finally decide to take the job. Um, and one of the things was like, I was like, hey, I want to talk to you, the head of your comp committee because I'm not taking this job without knowing who this other person who's going to influence decisions I make. And it's funny because he wasn't part of the process, evidently. Of And I was like, I, I won't. This is not going to happen. I think it's so crazy. But I was like, I want to meet this person um, so we met and I really liked him as a human then. In fact, he did a really good job of making me a lot more excited um, and not about the business, but about who the CEO, who Ken Lin was and why. Um, and that's part of Mickey's character. Like he is truly one of the most thoughtful people and he really does care. I mean, he'll tell you at the end of the day, like companies win by people and brand. Like those are the things that matter. And so... Um, so I knew this person worked really closely. We had a lot of big comp battles, uh, at credit karma. At one point I was literally like having to navigate to switching people off of the compensation committee and putting other board members on it. And those kind of, I mean, it was, so he saw me and then he saw through all of the deal and everything else. And so, um, when I sort of made the decision that I was ready to leave, uh, he was one of the first people I reached out to and his thing was like, go take six months off. Like you, you deserve a break. Um, I'd love to talk to you. Um, and of course I took, I did take time off, but I also was antsy about like, what am I going to do next? And I know it takes a long time. So I started meeting all of these CEOs and people who follow me know I called it the bachelorette because it was, you know, I was in this fortunate position of having a lot of inbound attention and not knowing how I was going to filter it all. And, um, even one week I met eight CEOs in eight days. So I was like on this, like, uh, path. Uh, one of the companies I was talking to was it was a Ribbit company, and so Mickey like randomly called me and said, "Hey, I heard you were talking to so and so. What did you think? What did you learn?" And I, I sort of you know played back what I was thinking about it, and he's like, "I have a better idea. This is dumb. You should come work for me, and then you can help them." And I was meeting more people from the firm and deciding. And you know, at the end of the day. I had, I was only considering COO jobs too, which I think is kind of an, the other interesting point. Like I, I had been a CPO for 15 years. I had been done this for a really long time. Like, I don't want to be a big company CPO either. Like I never had that dream of like, I was never going to be the chief people officer at Intuit or Microsoft or where, like, this is not my jam. Like I, I like the build I like knowing all of the people and helping them see where they're trying to go and navigating the strategy of what we're trying to get to. And usually the gnarlier the situation, the more exciting it is to me. And so the idea of being like a paper pusher at the top is not my, not what I would want to do. Um, and so I was like, and I had, you know, been fortunate in my last job to be basically the chief of staff for a CEO. And then I was running all of comms and social media, internal and external PR I was the company spokesperson on the business, all these kinds of things. And so I was like, I got to do something else. And I finally got it like the brass ring. I had these two COO offers and then I had this ribbit thing. And I 
at the end of the day, one is I really love Mickey, who, you know, is technically my boss and runs the firm. Number one. And number two is I was tired. And I think if I had taken those COO jobs, I don't think I would have been at my best self. And both of them would have been a lot of what I had to do before, which is like, be the courageous, carry the water, make all the hard calls. And I just don't think I was ready to do it, honestly. Um, and this was, you know, and I will say I've only been at Ribbit for about four months and I've had to learn a whole bunch of things I didn't know. Uh, there's a whole bunch of spaces. Like I had never done anything in crypto. We still do a lot of crypto. It's really fascinating. I have a suspicion that I will want to go back to being an operator because I don't know how we all get rid of that. Um, but this is a really great place for me right now to still be in learner mode and operating and and just I'm just learning a new perspective um, that I never would have had. So I'm very I mean, I feel very fortunate that I just met somebody who had this very different vision of the world um, and is letting me kind of try it out. My two takeaways from that is ask for what you want and build lasting relationships. And we all have to do that, especially in the CPO role. Let's get to our rapid fire questions, Colleen. Um, so it's called talent rules. We want to know who is your best hire and why. Okay. So the best hire I have ever made, and it's probably because I worked the hardest for it. Um, and he would laugh if he heard this, but um, his name is Mike Vernal. And I hired him at Microsoft and uh, out of Harvard. I think I had lunch with him every week for like a year and a half. I was in Boston, like working it, working it. And um, we had this program at the time, kind of behind the scenes. It was called the Blue Chip Program. So we were trying to find a little bit like athletic recruiting. Like we were, this is late 90s, early 2000s, mind you. That we were trying to figure out who the best computer science grads in the country were and how many of them could we hire. And then how do you calibrate those people? And how do you know that they're amazing? I mean, I had Steve Ballmer write, handwrite a card, actually to all of my Harvard kids. It wasn't just Mike. But, um, but he, I just remember the first time I met him as an intern, he was so smart. And also just very down to earth, like a very down to earth human. And he clearly was the influencer of everybody else. And I learned very early the strategy of find the person who's the center and what they decide, everyone else around them will decide. And I mean, we crafted like the perf the job that he wanted and I negotiated this huge signing bonus for him to get him there. And he is uh, Latino by background. So, you know, and we were paying attention to that then all these kinds of things. And he, when he came in, he really did crush it. Like he just rocked it for the couple of years he was there. And then of course he went on to be like one of the first 40 people at Facebook and then became their CTO and then went on to Sequoia. But yeah, this is the Sequoia partner, right? You hired him out of new grad. Yeah. Out of, out of Harvard. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. That's amazing. He's no longer, he actually just left Sequoia. Um, yeah. I also hired his now wife, who, uh, Ami Vora, who is the chief product officer at FAIR, but was the VP of product at Instagram. Um, and I, his college roommate declined me, but his name's Matt McInnes, and he is the co-founder of Rippling. Damn. I have a whole host of these kids from a very early time. Uh, Timothy Thyru, who is one of the first engineers at Stripe, or Drew Houston at MIT, or Andrew Bosworth was also one of my college hires to Microsoft Boz. Uh, I mean, Holy there's shit, like a, Colleen. There's like a whole run of, and I'm still in touch with all these people, which is really the most fun part of them. We could do a show um, just on this. I love that. Love that. What is your favorite interview question that gets the best signal on candidates? So my favorite interview question is, what are your insecurities and how do they manifest themselves at work? That's a great one. I only use it with very senior people because I feel like it's mean. Um, and uh, even in my last job, you know, Credit Karma, anybody who was going to work in my group anywhere, they'd have to interview with me. So even if you worked in physical security, and I did it just because I wanted them to not be scared of me and make me more approachable. I would not ask one of those, you know, more junior people early in career that question, but. What does it teach you? What do you learn from that? A, you learn how self-aware people are or are willing to be. 
and usually they will, the best candidates will come up with sort of the, when I'm at my worst self, this is what I turn into. What's the best answer you've gotten on that, Colleen? I have to ask. The best one I got was somebody who was willing to admit that they were, um, had grown up poor and that money was their biggest motivator. And that if their money is at risk, that they turn into, you know, a really bad decision maker. Uh, we ended up hiring that person and they ended up being totally fine. But, um, I think it's because they were totally honest about it was the reason we hired them. Normally I would have been like, Oh, they could do some sketchy things. They also weren't going to be the CFO or the GC or something like that, but such a great question. Colleen, this has been gold. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for the learnings. Our audience is going to love this. This is so fun. Thank you. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.